powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Wow, thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. Yes, we are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into this episode, though, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Scott Deluzio. The feedback to this episode from other veterans was not only immense, gratifying, but also very emotional as others shared their battles with the demons of PTSD and addiction. If you hadn't had the chance to listen to the interview, I strongly encourage you to listen after the conclusion of this episode and buy his book, Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran reveals the nightmare of becoming a gold star brother, which you can find wherever you buy your books online. All right, so welcome to episode 134. We have a very different kind of episode for you today, and this one is for the space fans. We have on the show today Dr. David Tolan, who holds a PhD in planetary sciences and works at the University of Hawaii Institute of Astronomy. Dr. Tolan will talk about getting interested in astronomy, the success of the NASA DART system, and the discovery that put him on the map, asteroid 99942, Apophis, which for a reasonable amount of time was classified as a near-Earth object which crossed into the path of our planet Earth within 20 years. This is an incredibly in-depth interview, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's get him out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet, and welcome to the show, calling in from Honolulu, Hawaii, astronomer Dr. David Tolan. Hello, welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? I suppose I could look that up real quick. It's probably <laughs> it's probably upper 70s without looking, 70 Fahrenheit. I see a little bit of sunshine reflecting off of the, the building next door. So probably your usual marine clouds floating around. So pretty typical day for Hawaii. So I start my news off the same way, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world up to this point? Oh, gosh. Well, professionally, our telescopes were shut down for a minimum, I'd say, of two months before they were allowed to uh, resume operating. It was actually longer than that for the university's telescope because uh, there was a a mechanical problem with the dome that needed to be repaired. And it was really difficult to, to navigate all that with all the pandemic restrictions in place. You know, businesses were, were shut down if they were deemed to be uh, unnecessary. And uh, so just getting parts uh, and uh, it, it was a multi-man effort as well. And it's, hard to do certain tasks when people aren't allowed to be close to one another. So um, uh, the university's telescope was actually offline for six months. 
before we're able to to resume. Yeah, you know, I have to think that at least in some cases, it was the people hunting for hazardous asteroids who kind of led the charge to get the approvals from the government authorities to allow them to resume operations. Unlike taking a spectrum of some galaxy, you know, how many millions of light years away it might be, that's not really something that you could call essential in the same way that grocery stores are essential. And so I think the government was content to just keep all the telescopes closed down because they didn't see them as essential. But uh, when you're uh, tasked with finding and tracking hazardous asteroids, well, you know, that's similar to like NORAD, except, you know, rather than finding missiles, we're, we're finding natural rocks out there that might impact the earth. And so some people I think regarded it as a, a necessary task. And so there were asteroid search efforts who kind of led the charge to, uh, you know, get the telescopes back open again. And mm-hmm. so uh, others followed suit. And I, I think if it hadn't been for them, we probably would have been out of commission for even longer. Classes were shifted online after spring break. I know in the fall semester, something like 90% or maybe more of classes were online. There were just a few, just a handful of in-person classes where it was like a laboratory, which really needed to be done in person. And I was teaching a laboratory, actually. So I I did an in-person class in the fall. So, yeah, universities were... uh, completely changing the way of delivering the learning experience to students, even though they're trying to get the majority of classes back to being in person. I think there will probably be an an online presence pretty much in perpetuity because there are some small fraction of students out there who might be immunocompromised or, or whatever, and you don't want to lock them out of uh, getting a college education. And so online classes are an an option for people that just can't take the risk. So they're still offering uh, some of the classes online and uh, universities that have embraced that are probably doing pretty good business right now, I would think. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? My hometown is Hayes, Kansas. That's about halfway between Kansas City and Denver on Interstate 70. It is sort of the regional hub for the entire northwestern corner of the state of Kansas. It was, you know, the place where you came to for college education. We had a a state four-year public university there. That's where the, the main regional medical center was located. That's where you had where farmers went to buy implements, uh, uh, heavy machinery. Uh, it, it was the the main center for the northwestern corner of the state. Population of about 20,000, uh, although the four-year university, technically outside the city limits, added about 5,000 to the population. It's more affectionately known by many people who grew up there as Hayes America. <laughs> That's because of Buster Weiler who owned a furniture store, and whenever he ran his television ads, it always ended with, Weilert's the big store, Hayes America. (laughs) 
So at what age did you decide that you discovered you had a desire to study things outside of our planet? You know, I would say one of the biggest influences probably came in my senior year of high school. Um, I happened to be on campus in the evening with some other students having kind of like a study hall for a physics exam that we were going to have the next day. And the, the physics teacher was there to, you know, answer questions, things like that. And he was also the instructor of the astronomy class. He was lamenting the fact that they would sometimes during the day say, come to campus in the evening and we'll look through the telescope at some of these things that are in the sky. And, you know, they, they'd make all those plans in the daytime when it's nice and sunny. And then by the evening after sunset, it would cloud over. And so they just had this uh, terrible problem with, you know, the best laid plans, uh, not working out. So uh, the only way you can know what the weather is going to do at that moment is to be at that moment. And so he was basically saying, maybe I should be teaching the astronomy class in the evening. <laughs> Several of us physics students were sitting there saying, oh, would you? <laughs> we, uh, we really wanted to take the astronomy class, but it was only offered as a one semester class, which means you had to pair it with something else our daytime schedules were full already. So uh, there's really no opportunity to do it. So, uh, you know, by offering in the evening, it could be taken as a one semester class. So uh, we went back and forth on it. He basically said, if you can get eight students to sign up for it, I'll do it. We had six and we can, they were all seniors. And we convinced one freshman who had built his own homemade telescope, uh, we eventually convinced him to sign up for it, even though he felt a little intimidated being three years younger than the rest of us. He felt that the class might be taught at too high a level for him. Uh, so we got up to seven and, you know, we're, we're practically begging, please, please. So the instructor finally relented and he said, okay, I'll teach the class with only seven. A couple of weeks into the class, the freshman was in fact too intimidated and he decided to drop out. So we dropped down to six. We thought the class was gonna be canceled, but no, I think uh, we showed enough interest in the subject matter and it was really going well. So uh, the class continued for the whole semester. So, you know, we got outside, we looked at the telescope, we were introduced to meteor showers and some things we could do on our, on our own without a telescope. That really got my interest in the subject going. Do you have any favorite memories from attending the University of Arizona? And how long did it take you to get your PhD? Well, we skipped a step in there. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Kansas. Uh, graduated from there in 1978 with a Bachelor of Science degree in physics and a Bachelor of Science degree in astronomy as well. So a double degree there. I applied for and was accepted to graduate school at the Department of Planetary Sciences which is sort of co-located with the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I started there in 1978. How long? I was right on the average. I think the typical student takes about five and a half years, and it took me five and a half years. You spend basically two years taking classes, and then it takes roughly three years 
Well, you, you need like a half a year to develop a, a thesis proposal and present it and get it approved and all that. And it took about three years to, to do the whole thesis. So a uh, total of about five and a half years. My first year, I was on a uh, sort of an, a wide open assistantship where I could basically choose whoever I wanted to work with and, and do whatever uh, research project uh, I, I wanted to do. And I spent that first year looking at the so-called splosh craters on Mars, where it looks like some object impacted and deeply enough to penetrate down into the permafrost layer on Mars, thus liquefying the, the, the water ice present and causing flow features uh, around the, the impact crater that uh, uh, gave it a very lobate structure to it. And so my big idea was that by looking at the size of the crater and by the presence or absence of this lobate structure, the depth of the permafrost layer could be looked at as a function of latitude on, on Mars. So that was kind of an interesting project. <clears throat> but it, as I said, it was just for the first year. For the second year, I had to get a a research assistantship with uh, one of the uh, other faculty or staff members. And uh, there was a, an opening with Ben Zellner and his eight-color asteroid survey project, which involved a lot of observations with telescopes. And so I, I had an interest in, in doing telescopic observations. So I was looking for a project. They were looking for a student. Uh, the interests kind of matched up. That's where my second and subsequent years turned to. In the course of, of that work, gosh, I was probably spending five nights a month up at 8,000 feet working with a one and a half meter telescope in the Santa Catalina Mountains. A couple of nights, a quarter working on a, a two meter telescope on Kitt Peak to the about an hour to the west of Tucson. So a lot of telescopic work and my experience with telescopes and in particular the instrumentation we were using uh, put me in a position to help out with a, a kind of a rare project that came up in 1981. Uh, Neptune was going to pass in front of a star a so-called stellar occultation, where the light from the star is going to be blocked from view by the planet. Now, the shadow of Neptune was actually predicted to miss the Tucson area. However, just a few years earlier, they had discovered rings around Uranus by the same mechanism, a stellar occultation. In addition to the star disappearing behind Uranus, they saw the, the star winking out multiple times as it was blocked by the rings on either side of the planet Uranus. So there was some speculation that Neptune might also have rings. And so the goal of this experiment was to monitor the occultation and see if the star disappeared for any length of time, both before and after the planetary occultation. As I said, the shadow itself missed the Tucson area, but we were close enough to where we should have seen rings. So we deployed high-speed photometers to measure the brightness of the star at a uh, one-and-a-half-meter telescope in the Santa Catalina Mountains, and about 10 miles away, further up the mountain range, at a one-meter telescope at the summit of Mount Lemmon. 
lo and behold, both telescopes saw an occultation event. The star disappeared. Gosh, I think it was for something like eight seconds. The interesting thing is it only disappeared once. And that created a bit of a puzzle because, you know, what we were expecting was to find rings. And if the star passes from the outside of the ring orbit to the inside of the ring orbit, well, eventually it has to pass from inside the ring orbit to back outside the ring orbit. So you would see occultation events in pairs. We only saw one. And so one hypothesis is that you just graze the edge of the ring so that uh, it didn't really go completely from outside to inside and then back out. But the other hypothesis was that it was occulted by a satellite or potentially some random asteroid that was closer to the Earth than, than Neptune. <clears throat> but uh, the chances of some random asteroid lining up at just the right time uh, to do that was really small. And so the most likely theory was that we had discovered a small satellite orbiting Neptune. And that was finally confirmed eight years later when the Voyager 2 spacecraft flew past Neptune and discovered multiple satellites in orbit. I mean, prior to the Voyager 2 flyby, we only knew of two satellites of Neptune, Triton, which is a Pluto-sized moon, and Nereid, which is a much smaller moon. Uh, but uh, the Voyager 2 spacecraft found another half dozen moons orbiting Neptune. And they got enough observations from Voyager 2 to determine the orbit rather well and extrapolate backward in time to 1981. And it turns out that the, the second moon was in the right place at the right time to have produced the occultation event that uh, we had observed. And so that meant we got the discovery credit for this satellite and therefore were given the privilege of proposing a name for it. Of course, by that time, I was out of grad school. So most of the decision-making process as to what to name it was done by the folks who were still at University of Arizona. And uh, so I wasn't really involved in the naming process for the object, but uh, it's the Neptune satellite now known as Larissa. So sort of the first nice. astronomical discovery, one of the interesting moments uh, of grad school. What led you to the University of Hawaii Institute for Astronomy? Well, in 1983, as I was wrapping up my thesis, that's when you start looking for postdoctoral job opportunities. And the University of Hawaii had advertised one with a focus on planetary astronomy. And that is where my expertise was uh, since, you know, the program I was going through was the Department of Planetary Sciences. And so uh, my, my formal PhD is in planetary sciences, not astronomy. University of Arizona has a separate department of astronomy. And, you know, the students who went through that program got a, a doctorate in astronomy, but my doctorate's in planetary sciences. And they had this uh, position, this postdoc uh, at, uh, at the University of Hawaii, specifically looking for uh, an observational planetary scientist. So I applied for it. There's a really long story involved in that. They eventually offered me the position and I accepted it. 
started officially on November 1st, 1983. My actual thesis defense was a month later, December of 1983. And that was really too late to get all of the changes to the thesis made and submitted. So my official graduation date is uh, August 1984. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there. So I actually started my postdoc before I'd finished the PhD, technically. I was expecting to be at the University of Hawaii for like three years, typical duration of a postdoc. But the project that I was working on when I uh, first started here was a very rare opportunity to observe the Pluto-Charon system with the orbit of Charon basically edge on. Uh, the satellite Charon was discovered in 1978 by Jim Christie at the United States Naval Observatory Flagstaff Station. He was just doing routine astrometry or measuring the position of Pluto on photographic plates that had been taken. He wouldn't measure a plate if it looked like the telescope had mistracked during the exposure. And several of the plates he had looked at, there was a bump on one side of Pluto, and he concluded that you know the telescope had mistracked. And so he just set it aside and, and said, no, I'm not going to measure that. But it was happening to an awfully large number of plates that where there was a bump on one side, and he's going, why are we getting so many badly tracked plates? And then he took a look at star images and going, oh, wait a minute, the stars are round, so the tracking is fine. So what's causing the bump? Is it a background star? Then he, he went through this collection of plates that he had rejected, and he knows that the bump was always either on the north side or the south side, and it was always about the same distance. And so uh, they came to the conclusion that they were seeing a, a satellite in orbit around Pluto. They announced that discovery in 1978, <clears throat> but uh, there were a lot of skeptics out there because it was just a bump on the on the side of Pluto, like like a bulge. Uh, you never really clearly saw them as separate bodies. They just you know, they weren't far enough apart, and Pluto being so far away, you couldn't really resolve the satellite from the planet. But uh, through a technique called speckle interferometry, they were able to resolve the two bodies, and that at least convinced me that uh, the satellite was real. The orbit was very close to being edge on. And so there was one of two possibilities. Either we had just finished a, a mutual event season or one was just about to start. And when I say mutual events, what I mean is when the orbit is precisely edge on, the satellite will pass in front of Pluto, blocking some of the light from view, and it will also pass directly behind Pluto and become hidden from view. And when that happens, there's a dip in the brightness of the object. So if you can measure photometrically that dip in brightness, you can actually measure the size. And we knew the mass of the system from Kepler's third law. It's an astronomical law that comes from the orbit of the satellite moving around the planet. <clears throat> and so we realized we could measure the density and actually give us a clue as to what Pluto was made of. So it was a, a really neat project to, to, to work on. But the question was, did that just finish happening? 
we, we knew that the orbit was close to being edge on, but we didn't yet know if the orbit was closing or whether it was opening up. So one of the first things I did was team up with some people who were, uh, who had speckle interferometric equipment. We made even more observations, started doing orbit solutions and came to the conclusion that the orbit is closing and that the mutual events would start occurring perhaps as early as 1983, maybe as late as 1985. And in fact, it was the upper end of that range. Uh, the first event didn't happen until 1985, but we started measuring these mutual events. And so we knew from the orbit computations that the whole mutual event season was going to last about six years. So three years into this postdoc, I had made like three years of observation. The project was just going really, really well. My supervisor called me in one day and he basically said, do you want to continue working on this project? And I said, well, absolutely. I want to see it through the whole six years, wherever I am. And he's going, well, you know, we'd like to see you keep working on this too. And and so does NASA. So they said, uh, uh, we can extend your postdoc another three years. So I uh, continued on for another three years. And during the course of the second postdoc term, some of the faculty positions started opening up. We had four faculty positions that were historically uh, planetary scientists. And uh, we had one person move on. We had another person retire. So there were some openings for planetary astronomers. And uh, I applied for one of the positions and was fortunate enough to be selected for it. So I just moved from a postdoc position right into a faculty position. And I've been here ever since. That's incredible. All right. So before we talk about some of the incredible asteroid discoveries that you've been a part of, can you give my listeners some basic background on the science of tracking the sky to look for comets and asteroids? The most frequently used technique to find new asteroids, new comets, is to take a picture of the sky, and then you take a second picture sometime later, back in the old days, when things were being done with photographic plates, what you would do is you would put them into a machine called a blink comparator. This is basically how Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto back in 1930. He had a mechanical device where you could load two plates. You would align them so that the stars were all in the same places. And then via some mechanical uh, device that would first show one plate and then the other plate through an eyepiece, you could look for things that moved. And it was all done visually. Of course, nowadays, that's all done in the computer. Uh, the com you, can, you can load the images, digital images, into the computer, and it can spot where all the stars are, and it knows that they're basically in the same places in, in both images. And so it'll just look digitally for moving objects. And uh, that's how you discover new solar system objects. Of course, if it's got some fuzziness associated with it, then there's a good chance you're actually looking at a comet. Although it's happened on many, many occasions that they'll discover an object that looks perfectly stellar in appearance, meaning it's, it's an asteroid, but it will have an orbit which is typical of a comet. And in fact, it will later develop or, you know, Maybe maybe not later on, but somebody just using a bigger telescope with a, a deeper exposure will will find a faint tail associated with it or a faint coma around it. 
And so there are lots of objects that have been discovered and designated as asteroids, which have in fact uh, now been identified as comets. So we've actually got some duplicates in the catalogs. 2060 Chiron is a wonderful example of that. It's, it's in the asteroid catalog as asteroid number 2060. It's also in the comet catalog. So a bunch of objects like that. The main difference between now in our digital era and in the past is that up until, oh, I'd say the mid-1980s, this discovery process was done primarily with photographic plates. And, and you could make photographic plates fairly large. I think some of the largest plates out there were, well, I think the Palomar Schmidt telescope, one and a half meter telescope on Palomar Mount in Southern California, I think it took glass plates 14 inches square. And so you could actually expose something like close to 40 square degrees of sky all at once. And uh, I think there may be a telescope in Chile that uh, took plates as large as 21 inches in size. So these photographic plates were just monstrous and you could see so much sky at once. The problem with digital detectors is that they were tiny back in the in the mid 1980s, and so uh, the, they they were a lot more sensitive to light, and so you could take much shorter exposures and get just as faint, detect just as faint an object, or you could take just as long an exposure and find much fainter objects in your images, but you were taking pictures of such tiny pieces of sky. So uh, the, the chances of finding an assay were so small. What really changed things was when they started, well, first of all, the detectors were getting bigger, but they started putting multiple detectors in the focal plane. Nowadays, we have cameras that have as many as a billion pixels, so-called gigapixel cameras. And you compare that with your smartphone, you know, where it might be, I don't know, a 20 megapixel camera or something like that. Here we're talking gigapixel cameras with dozens of digital detectors covering a focal plane as large as a photographic plate. And that's what's really changed the field of uh, asteroid and comet discoveries because now you have the advantage of detectors that are just as large as photographic plates, but a lot more sensitive. And so the discovery rate for asteroids and comets has just exploded partly because of uh, congressional directives to actually find hazardous asteroids. So a lot of telescope time has been devoted to sky surveys to find asteroids that are close to the Earth. And in the process of finding asteroids close to the Earth, you're also finding asteroids in the, the so-called main belt, where most of them are between Mars and Jupiter. We also find asteroids further out. Uh, there's a, a lot of asteroids that will cross the orbits of Saturn, for example, so-called centaur group asteroids. And then even beyond the orbit of Neptune, there's been thousands of objects discovered in a, a, a belt that was named after one of the people who had proposed the existence of it, Gerard Kuiper, so it's known as the Kuiper Belt. Some people call it the Edgeworth Kuiper Belt because another scientist by the name of Edgeworth had made a similar proposal. 
there's always some debate as to who had the idea first. So, but yeah, some people call it the Kuiper Belt. Some people call it the Edgeworth Kuiper Belt. Uh, so there's there's just lots and lots of small objects in the solar system that are being uh, routinely discovered. Thousands of new near-Earth asteroids being found every year now. So I want to talk about the asteroid that dominated headlines, asteroid 99942 Apophis, a near-Earth object 1,100 feet across, considerably larger than a football stadium. It was discovered in 2004. How long did it take you to confirm the existence of the asteroid? And do you remember the initial reaction that it could possibly hit Earth in that century? Well, I guess it depends on what you consider confirmation. Uh, we took three exposures on June 19th of 2004 with the two-meter telescope on Kitt Peak that belongs to the University of Arizona. It's named after Bart Bach, one of the astronomers who worked there. So it's called the Bach Telescope, B-O-K. We saw a moving object, and uh, we more or less confirmed it the following night. Another three exposures. We linked them up. So we had confirmation of the discovery on June 20th, just one night later. We were intending to get additional observations three nights after that. We had more time assigned to us on that same telescope on the 23rd and the 24th of June, but there was an uncharacteristically early thunderstorm, the Southern Arizona desert that year, and it rained on us both nights. So we were unable to get additional observations. After that, the moon started getting into the way, and by the time the moon got out of the way, the asteroid was too close to the sun for additional observations. It went behind the sun from, you know, the Earth's point of view and didn't come back out until December. So it wasn't until December that a telescope in Australia spotted it on the other side of the sun. And then once the Minor Planet Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts linked the December observations to the June observations, that really firmed up the orbit considerably. And that's when it became apparent that this object was going to come extremely close to the Earth in the year 2029. In fact, on April 13th, which just happens to be a Friday. So Friday the 13th. <laughs> and uh, this immediately led to calculations of uh, the possibility of an Earth impact. And for the first time in history, an asteroid rose to level two on the so-called Torino scale of Earth impact hazard. As more observations came in, the probability of an impact kept climbing. It got as high as between, uh, I think, three and four percent. Uh, something like that. This was all in like the week before Christmas. And so many astronomers who were tracking this object, trying to determine if it was going to hit the Earth in just, you know, 25 years time, were spending their nights looking through their telescopes, taking pictures, measuring images, tracking this asteroid. It became known as the Grinch that stole Christmas. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, a lot of people who were busy doing this work rather than enjoying the festivities normally associated with, with Christmas 
Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So yeah, Apophis became known as the Grinch that stole Christmas. But what happened was people started looking for pre-discovery images. I mean, we have vast archives of images of the sky. And uh, what typically happens when you find a new object is that you, you look at the orbit, you extrapolate backward in time to see if anybody might have been pointed at the right place at the right time to have seen this object. And it turns out the Space Watch telescope, uh, which was being run by Tom Garrels, one of the professors at the University of Arizona, uh, they, they had this telescope also on Kitt Peak that happened to be pointed at the right place at the right time in March of 2004, three months earlier. And so they went back and looked at those images and they found something at about the right place at the right time, but it was extremely faint, too faint to have been picked up by the computer algorithms that were being used to, to uh, you know, sort of uh, automatically scan these images. The signal to noise ratio was just too low for an automatic detection, but they could pick it up by eye. So when they were uh, able to measure where it was in those images and submit those positional measurements to the Meyer Plan Center, that immediately made the observational arc jump from six months long to nine months long. And at that point, we knew the orbit well enough to rule out an impact in 2029. So the impact probably dropped from, you know, 3% down to 0% essentially overnight. And uh, everybody gave a sigh of relief for a little while. It didn't take long, though, before other impact scenarios started popping up. 2035, 2036, you know, there were just dozens of impact possibilities throughout the next century. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. David Tolan. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, yes, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard and premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duvall Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. 
With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hey there, this is Frankie Ray, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. My latest single, Over Now, is available on all streaming platforms. Hope you like it. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. This is B-Word, one half of the host of the Bleach Brothers podcast. My buddy Jake the Hater, Jake the Tailgater, joins me every single week on Sundays to cover things like dadisms, food and beverage, and all things entertainment. And just like Sunday church, when you get out, you can come and enjoy all the dirty talk and get sanitized. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 134 of the Derek Duvall Show. 
Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with famed astronomer, Dr. David Tolan. So when you discover something like that, do you have to make a phone call to the Department of Defense? Is that like, you know, we've discovered something that might potentially, you know, cause severe damage on Earth? How does that exactly does that play out? Back in 2004, there was no protocol. That has changed. The whole asteroid hazard issue has uh, been taken a lot more seriously. I mean, actually, we, we can we can back up a, a lot at this point uh, and, and talk about what made it such a priority. 1989, we had an asteroid buzz the Earth, 1989 FC, if I remember the designation correctly. And then, uh, you know, that made headlines. Uh, you know, asteroid narrowly misses the Earth. And people in Congress took notice. They uh, started asking NASA, hey, what are you doing about this? And NASA's response was basically, well, we're doing nothing because the probability of an Earth impact is extremely low. And so, that was pretty much the end of it until 1991, when another asteroid buzzed the Earth, 1991 BA. That one was tiny. Even if it had hit, it wouldn't have caused any significant damage. It, most of it would have burned up in the atmosphere. But still, it made headlines. You know, asteroid narrowly misses Earth. And we didn't see that one coming. It came out from the direction of the sun. So uh, once again... There were people in Congress asking NASA, what are you doing about this? And, and NASA basically gave the same response. Well, we're not doing anything because the probability of an impact is so low. But uh, Congress wasn't happy with that. So they said, well, we want you to set up two committees. One committee was tasked with, how do we go about finding these things? The other committee was tasked with, if we do find one that's going to impact the Earth, what can we do about it? So these two committees were unofficially known as the detection and the deflection committees. How do you detect them? How do you deflect them? Or blow them up, I suppose, another alternative. Um, the detection committee was chaired by David Morrison, who happened to be a faculty member at the University of Hawaii. And... Uh, he asked me to serve on the committee because I had experience observing near-Earth asteroids. So that's what got me involved. And uh, the deflection committee was chaired by John Rather. And most of the people on that committee were uh, people at Los Alamos, people who had experience with you know, nuclear weapons and, and things like that. But they didn't have any experience with what asteroids were made of. And so they needed a few asteroid experts to also serve on their committee to, to provide them with some advice. I was one of maybe a half a dozen asteroid people who were asked to serve on the deflection committee as well. So I was on both committees. Uh, the detection committee wrote up its report in 1991. It was submitted to NASA in January 1992. It was called the Space Guard Survey Report. And it made some recommendations on on the kind of sky survey you would need to conduct to, to find asteroids at a significant rate. Uh, one of the issues I had with this report 
was it basically made the recommendation that the best place in the sky to look for asteroids is the so-called opposition region. This is the part of the sky that is opposite the sun. So it's called the opposition region for, for obvious reasons. And the nice thing about the opposition region is that, you know, if you look at planets, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, they're at their brightest when they're at opposition. And the reason for that is obvious. Uh, that's when they're closest to the Earth. Uh, because the Earth is between them and the, and the Sun. So we're basically one astronomical unit closer to these planets than on average. And that makes them brighter. Also, if you've ever looked at the difference in brightness between a, a crescent moon and a full moon, you know that the full moon is a lot brighter than a crescent moon. So the angle of illumination also plays a role. And when an object is at opposition, it's basically like at full moon. And so it, it's brighter for uh, illumination reasons as well. So these objects are at their brightest in the opposition region. Uh, the other advantage of the opposition region is that it rises in the east at sunset and it sets in the west at sunrise. And so you have access to the opposition region for the entire night. So uh, that is, in fact, where sky surveys looking for asteroids had been focusing their efforts on the opposition region. They wanted to take advantage of the increased brightness and the fact that you could work on that same part of the sky the entire night. And so this report came out and said the best place in the sky to look for hazardous asteroids is the opposition region. But I took issue with that claim. Uh, I basically said, well, how did you reach this conclusion? And they said, well, we uh, simulated a survey based on a, on a model population, a model population of synthetic asteroids. They go, well, what is the model population based on? They said, well, the model population is based on the known population. And I'm going, but wasn't the known population discovered using opposition surveys? And the answer is, of course. So I'm going, well, this sounds to me like circular reasoning. You're basically saying the best place to look for them is where you have been looking for them. Uh, and I started thinking about the possibility that there was an asteroid with an orbit basically entirely interior to the Earth's orbit. If one of these asteroids had an orbit whose furthest distance from the sun happened to match the Earth's orbit, it could come up and smack us from the daytime side and we never see it coming because we were concentrating all of our attention in the opposition region. In fact, if you were to draw a diagram, here's where a camera and a, and a, a blackboard would be, would be great to illustrate the effect. But imagine looking down on the solar system from above and you have a telescope that's looking outward from the Earth's orbit day after day, day after day, over an entire year. Well, if you were to shade that region of the solar system where you have looked, you'd be shading the region exterior to the Earth's orbit. And if you keep doing that day after day, all the way for an entire year, you have looked at everything outside the Earth's orbit, but you've not looked at anything inside the Earth's orbit. So my big question was, could there be an asteroid there that could come up and hit us and we not even see it coming? At the time, 
we only knew of two objects with those kinds of orbits, Mercury and Venus. Of course, both of those are, they don't come anywhere close to the Earth, so we didn't have to, to worry about them. But what about a small asteroid? And so I started writing funding proposals to NASA saying, hey, I want to do a survey where we look very low in the western sky after sunset or very low in the eastern sky before sunrise where we can actually look at the part of the solar system that's interior to the Earth's orbit. Very difficult to do those observations. Uh, most people have never seen Mercury, for example, in their entire lives. It never gets that far away from the sun. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to see Mercury. Most people have seen Venus, partly because it's so big and gets to be so bright. But you never see it at midnight, at least uh, unless you're at the North Pole or the South Pole. Uh, but you know, in in the in the mid latitudes or the equatorial region, you never see Venus at midnight. It 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 sets a few hours after sunset, and it rises a few hours before sunrise. So, the big question I had was: Are there asteroids in this part of the uh, solar system? You look at a a plot of all the known asteroid orbits, and there were zero known. When you do these model populations, you try and correct for observational biases. But, you know, when you're correcting for an observational bias, you, you have to divide by some known number. Well, in this case, the known number was zero. And when you divide by zero, well, you got a mathematical problem. So you can't really model an unknown population. So I had an issue with this uh, report that had been uh, submitted to, to NASA. And, you know, there was sort of an executive summary that was submitted to Congress to, to satisfy the congressional mandate. Basically, as I said, I started writing these funding proposals to NASA to, to look interior to the Earth's orbit for asteroids. And, you know, I had to admit right up front, this is not going to be very efficient. You know, we're going to be looking at asteroids that are going to be fainter than they would be in the opposition region. We're not going to be able to use all the night. So it's going to be very inefficient in terms of telescope time. You know, the digital detectors were getting bigger. We had a nice two-meter telescope that I thought we could utilize a significant amount of time on to, to do these observations. It, it took several failed attempts to get funding before uh, NASA finally said, hey, we got a little bit of extra money left over this year. Are, are you still interested in doing this survey? And I said, oh, of course. That started about 2002, if I remember correctly. In 2004, that's when we made the discovery of the object now known as Apophis. And again, that was done pretty much right after sunset, uh, very low in the western part of the sky. So it was a very difficult observation. And then uh, the, the thing about Apophis, though, is that its orbit does cross the Earth's orbit. So it, it can get into that part of the sky where an opposition survey would find it. It's just that it spends 95% of its time interior to the Earth's orbit, something like that, 90, 90 to 95% of the time. So uh, uh, the probability of finding is much higher if you look where we were looking, rather than waiting for it to, to go into the so-called opposition region. And then in December of 2004, we found another object. It got designated 2004 XZ-130. 
that one was very gratifying because that orbit is in fact entirely interior to the Earth's orbit. It never crosses the Earth's orbit. If you were only looking at opposition regions, you'd never see that one. Uh, it's not a hazardous asteroid. It doesn't get close enough to the Earth to represent an impact hazard. This illustrated that, first of all, asteroids do exist in that region of the solar system, interior to the Earth's orbit. And that triggered other surveys to start spending some of their time looking low in the west after sunset and low in the east just before sunrise. So they're, they've now... They're, they're taking a little bit of time away from their opposition surveys and doing some near-sun observations. And we found a lot more. We, we now know a couple dozen objects that have orbits entirely interior to the Earth's orbit. And uh, so it, it is very gratifying to see that uh, development. So when I told my listeners that you're going to be on the show, uh, we had a lot of questions that got thrown in. And if it's okay, I want to quickly ask one or two. Uh, sure. what the one that was the most <laughs> the one that was the most popular uh, was this particular subject and that is what is your opinion on object 1i slash 217 u1 Oumuamua? Oumuamua, the interstellar the first interstellar discovery i'm going to guess that the reason why people are interested in this one is because there was a suggestion made by someone at a prestigious university known as Harvard that it could be of alien origin, not a natural object. I think part of the reason for this speculation is that the path of the object through our own solar system suggests that it wasn't behaving entirely under the force of gravity alone. We know how to compute the gravitational pull of the sun and all of the planets, so we can take that into account very precisely. We can even take into account the gravitational pull of dozens of asteroids for which we have pretty good mass estimates. So when you take into account the gravitational effects on Oumuamua, you still see a slight departure in its motion from what you would expect from gravitational interactions alone. The speculation is that it really a comet. In other words, it had some volatile materials that got heated by the sunlight. And when they escaped from the surface of Oumuamua, they uh, caused a, a slight propulsive effect you can call it the rocket effect. We call it a, a, a non-gravitational force. So just gas escaping from the object. And you can account for the motion of the object in this way. But of course, you can also account for it with rocket propulsion. So uh, some people can argue that... Uh, this was uh, an, actually an, an alien spacecraft, and it was uh, just firing a uh, a rocket. And they were, I don't know, maybe they're trying to get from one place to another in the galaxy, and they were using the sun for a gravity assist, but they had to steer it just right in order to get the, the right flyby distance. Uh, 
that's that's sheer speculation. That's that's it's interesting sci-fi. It 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 make for a great story. I don't know if you're familiar with the the novel Rendezvous with Rama. Excellent book. It's basically about a telescope discovering an interstellar object. But this was written, you know, decades ago. So it it's certainly predates the discovery of Oumuamua. It it's certainly not necessary to invoke sci-fi in this particular case to explain the motion of the object. It's uh a very elongated object, just from looking at changes in the brightness, the way it reflected sunlight, we know it's a very elongated object. Some of the artist's depictions of it may be uh, possibly exaggerated. There are some problems just taking the light ratio and converting that into a cross-sectional area ratio because of the way you know the 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 angle of illumination it it can change the way in which the uh, fraction of light changes as an object rotates. And so I, I take some of the artist's depictions with a grain of salt, but some of the artist's depictions had it almost cigar shaped, extremely elongated. And that is highly unusual for solar system objects. So, mm. Okay. To have such a to have such an aspect ratio is it's uh, highly unusual among solar system objects. So that may have added to the the notion that this was some kind of an an alien device of some sort. All right. So uh, one of the other fans want to know is what is your opinion on the outcome of the NASA DART system? Oh, the DART mission. Yeah. Oh. Gosh, how many ways can we look at the? Uh, uh, well, first of all, it's very successful. It's not like it's the the first time we've done something like that. I mean, we th there was a, a spacecraft mission some years ago called Deep Impact, in which we hit a comet. Uh, this time we didn't hit it with the whole spacecraft. Uh, we hit it with a, a projectile that was uh, basically. It, it, it was affixed to the spacecraft and then detached from the spacecraft. And then the spacecraft was diverted so that the spacecraft itself would miss, but the projectile would make an impact, cause a crater and uh, take images of that whole impact event. So uh, uh, this is the second time NASA's conducted an, an impact like this, but this time it was the whole spacecraft to get maximum effect. Maybe I shouldn't say the whole spacecraft because it did deploy a CubeSat that the Italians had built to uh, take pictures of the event. So like oh, 90, 95% of the spacecraft was allowed to, to smack into this asteroid. So uh, the impact itself, very successful. The change in the orbital period was they, they were estimating something like maybe 10 minutes. Uh, they've announced like a 32-minute change in the orbital period. So they got even more of a response from the impact than they were anticipating. I think the biggest surprise for me is that, uh, you know, I, I took some images of Didymos last Tuesday. I had assigned telescope time. And I, I took 
nine exposures in morning twilight, it still has a tail. So this was totally unexpected, I think. We knew that there would be a, uh, a plume of material ejected from the impact site. So there's this, this cone of material that was ejected, and you can see that in the images. And we knew it was going to take some time for that to dissipate. There was going to be this debris cloud. And so the, the ground-based telescopic observations that they were planning on, they were saying it may not be possible to do these for a few days to a few weeks because of this debris cloud. Well, after a few weeks, the debris cloud may have more or less dissipated, but it still has this tail. And uh, the way sunlight can interact with fine dust material, it, it can basically push it away. I mean, those people who have learned about how comet tails are formed, you know, a comet will have some of the gas sublimate and the sunlight will push on the dust that's released in this process and it'll push it away from the sun. And that's what produces a, a comet's tail. <clears throat> so for basically the same reasons, you would expect all the fine dust that got lofted in this impact but had been pushed away uh, from the asteroid by now. And so it should be relatively clear. And yet it's got this tail. What this is telling me is that this asteroid is still actively producing material. Now, what could that be caused by? Well, it's apparently behaving like a comet. So what this impact has done, it excavated enough material, it went down deep enough to expose some volatile material inside. And when I say volatile, I'm talking about uh, some kind of material that's easily, it's, it's got a very low temperature at which it evaporates. So things like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, ammonia, water, uh, these kinds of materials are, are very easily evaporated by sunlight at that distance from the sun. And so uh, basically what we're seeing here is that the, the, the interior of this asteroid apparently still has a, a fair reservoir, reservoir of uh, volatile materials, most likely water. I mean, that, that's the most abundant, and, uh, and it's, it's at the right temperatures to be uh, easily evaporated. That, to me, is the biggest surprise. Uh, Didymos is, is still observable with telescopes. Uh, the observations are probably going to continue through March, roughly. And uh, all the photometric data for measuring the change in the orbital period of the satellite will be collected and i think the intent is to do sort of the final analysis of the data in roughly the may time frame so we'll, we'll have the the best answer uh that we're going to get from this experiment uh sometime in the middle of the year there'll probably be a paper written up about that and uh submitted for publication the review process take a few weeks i would imagine so uh, maybe by late summer we'll have uh, publications in the scientific journals showing the results of of the uh, the whole mission, and uh, 
we'll get more pictures later on from uh, a follow-up spacecraft, a European spacecraft, which is uh, going to arrive there. I don't remember the exact date for the arrival. So uh, we'll, we'll get some, some pictures perhaps of the impact crater at uh, several years from now, but uh, that the deflection occurred and at a, at a magnitude more significant than we were initially expecting, uh, very interesting result, very successful mission. It'll be interesting to read what some of the specialists on interior structure conclude about what the interior of this particular asteroid was like. And, you know, when I say asteroid, I, I should probably emphasize this is a double asteroid. It's a binary asteroid. So we, we've got a smaller asteroid in orbit around a larger asteroid. The larger asteroid is known as Didymos. The smaller asteroid went by the nickname Didymoon for, for the longest time, but technically it's now Dimorphos. So it's Dimorphos that's, uh, that had the impact on it. And it's the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos, whose orbital period was changed from roughly 12 hours to 11 and a half hours. So I had Star Trek actor Tim Russ on the show last year, and he was talking about how he assisted NASA in identifying, along with a few other astronomers, of course, an asteroid orbiting Jupiter using a uh, Udastella EV scope and Equinox telescope. Are you impressed with the quality of telescopes available to civilians and how instrumental have amateur skywatchers been in assisting your, your team's work? Amateurs contribute a huge amount of quality data to the near-Earth asteroid follow-up effort. And in fact, sometimes they discover asteroids uh, themselves. The second uh, interstellar object that was discovered, uh, 2I slash Borisov, that was named after uh, a non-professional astronomer who happened to, to discover this interstellar object. So uh, uh, some people actually object to the use of the term amateur. Uh, I prefer the term hobbyist. I think that is, is probably a, a better reflection of it because there are some amateurs out there who actually do or, or know more than some professionals. It really depends on your area of expertise. You can be a quote-unquote amateur who is really into near-Earth asteroids who will know a lot more about near-Earth asteroids than some professional astronomers whose expertise is in galaxies or in stellar evolution or in cosmology, and they really don't know anything about near-Earth asteroids at all. So when you have an amateur that knows more about a subject than a professional, it kind of raises questions as to why are you being called an amateur? So yeah, I can understand why people object to the use of the term amateur. So I actually prefer the term hobbyist. They, they're not getting paid to do the work, but they're really doing some spectacular work. And again, it's these digital detectors that have made all the difference. They're so much more sensitive than photographic plates that uh, you can use a relatively small telescope in your backyard, and you can still observe fairly faint objects with uh, relatively small consumer-grade telescopes. I mean, uh, the, the company Celestron makes telescopes for consumers as large as 14 inches, 14-inch mirrors. And uh, with one of those and a digital camera, 
it's not hard to detect objects as faint as what we call 20th magnitude. Now I'm starting to get into jargon that maybe some of your listeners are unfamiliar with, but it's a measure of the brightness of an object. And, uh, you know, the human eye can see things down to about sixth magnitude. Uh, if, if you look at, at Venus, when it's at its brightest, that's like a minus four magnitude, uh, Jupiter about a minus two and a half. Uh, the faintest thing you can see with the naked eye is about sixth magnitude. Pluto is 14th magnitude, just to put some numbers to these things. So uh, hobbyist astronomers with their backyard telescopes, they can get down to 20th magnitude. And a lot of the near-Earth asteroids that are found by the professional sky surveys are in that range, you know, 19th, 20th magnitude. And that permits these uh, hobbyist astronomers to do follow-up work with their backyard telescopes. And, you know, even with, there are new digital techniques called synthetic tracking, where you can take an enormous number of short exposures and just use a GPU and a computer to perform the necessary image processing to stack them all up according to the predicted motion of an asteroid. And there, there's two ways to observe faint objects. You can, well, let's say three ways. You can use a more sensitive detector, which they're already doing using these digital cameras. You can use larger telescopes, which unfortunately for a lot of hobbyists, there's a limit to how big a telescope you can afford to put in your backyard. But the other thing is to take long exposures. So really long exposure times can compensate for having a smaller mirror. And that's what some of these folks are doing. They're using digital cameras on their backyard telescopes, and they're just taking hundreds and hundreds of exposures, which are now relatively easy to accumulate into a single long exposure by using synthetic tracking techniques. Uh, you need a really fast uh, computer. GPUs are, are, are capable of doing that. The software exists. And so you're able to get relatively faint using relatively small telescopes. Now, you're not going to cover a, a huge amount of sky that way. So it's really more optimum for doing follow-up work where you roughly know where it's going to be rather than finding new objects. So uh, the, the big survey telescopes are still going to dominate that field. But there's a lot of hobbyist astronomers that uh, are, are tracking near-Earth asteroids up to the point where it gets a bit too faint for their equipment. And then, you know, that's where those of us with access to the really big telescopes take over. But uh, yeah, they, they do an incredible amount of work. And uh, sometimes uh, they don't get the acknowledgement they deserve. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, uh, I always like to ask one fun question, and that is, what do you like to do to relax and unwind since you live on Hawaii? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's difficult to hop on an airplane for a, a weekend getaway unless you do it on one of the neighbor islands. Uh, you know, other than the neighbor islands, it's, it's a minimum five-hour plane flight to, to get to the next closest landmass. So to, to get back and forth, that, that just kills a whole day out of a weekend. So, yeah, you're, you're either doing pretty much a staycation or uh, something else. And, and in my case, uh, 
my big hobby is in music. That's that's the way I unwind. It gets me out of the office. Uh, it just totally clears the mind. You're doing something completely different. It, it's something I've enjoyed doing since, uh, well, childhood. Uh, I started on piano lessons in first grade. I was a little young to do that, but I had an older brother who was taking piano lessons and uh, his piano teacher basically said the lesser of two evils is to start at too young an age rather than to learn the monkey see monkey do way. So uh, I, I started in first grade taking piano lessons. Uh, fourth grade, uh, that's when I started on a wind instrument, namely the clarinet. So uh, I've been playing clarinet now for, uh, what, 58 years? That's a long time. And I branched out to include the bass clarinet from the clarinet family. Started doing that in, I think it was 1990 or 1991, when I was uh, playing in a pit orchestra for a musical where the book called for both clarinet and bass clarinet. So the director asked me if I could uh, play bass clarinet as well. I had to borrow one because I didn't have one. Now I do have one. I, I bought one in 1999. And uh, the big question back then was, am I really going to get uh, the money's worth out of this? Am I going to play it enough to get my money's worth? And the answer has been a resounding yes. I've played it almost exclusively now for the last uh, 23 years in bands. Uh, orchestras, there's not nearly as much bass clarinet in orchestral music. So I'm still on the regular clarinet uh, for a lot of orchestral music. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your research and basically what you're doing online? Well, all of our stuff gets published by the Minor Planet Center. This is the International Clearinghouse for Asteroid Observations of this nature. It's officially sanctioned by the International Astronomical Union. Lately, it's been getting its funding from NASA uh, to, to do this work because of the congressional directive to actually uh, find hazardous asteroids. And so uh, the, the telescopes I use, they have observatory codes associated with them. So if, uh, if somebody really wanted to, to pay close attention, uh, sometimes the names aren't, e well, the names are associated with the observations, but you have to do more digging to find that uh, information. Uh, it's it's easier to see the telescope that's associated with it because you need to know that in order to compute the orbit properly. Uh, you need to know where the observation was made from in order to remove parallactic information from the orbit computation. So that part is easy to find. And if people want to go to the Meyer Planet Center website, they could just look for observations that are made by site T12. That's the University of Hawaii's two-meter telescope at the summit of Mauna Kea. Or T14, which is the Canada France Hawaii telescope, also at the summit of Mauna Kea. And much less common is T09, which is the Subaru 8 meter telescope, the Japanese National Telescope, also at the summit of Mauna Kea. So those are the three facilities I've used most frequently for my work. And uh, all that stuff gets published uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, in uh, in 2022, I think I had the submitted observations for publication 364 times 
out of 365 days. So almost on a daily basis. So that's one way you can follow online. If, if you want to uh, see which objects are so-called virtual impactors, that means they have orbit solutions that are compatible with an Earth impact scenario sometime over the next century. All that is public information. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory has a, a website called Sentry, which they keep track of which uh, asteroids are hazardous. So you can see them getting new discoveries getting added to that list, older discoveries getting removed from that list as we add new observations from it, including our own. Uh, there's a there's a parallel service in Europe, uh, which is called the Near Earth Object Dynamics Site, or NEODIS for short, or some people say NEODICE. Uh, so uh, you, you can Google that and, and find its website as well. It, it has a similar risk list on there where you can keep track of new objects getting added to the, the risk list and uh, old objects getting removed. So uh, all this stuff is on online. People can follow it very easily. You just need to uh, put you know, find the right URL, put it in your bookmark, and, and you can keep track of uh, the, the whole hazardous asteroid business. It's all very transparent. That's amazing. Okay, so I end my interviews with my favorite question, and the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? You know, one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is how interdependent we are as a society. You just look at the whole supply chain issues and things like that, it's really difficult in this day and age to live in isolation. Now, some people might be able to do that on their own, you know, have some cabin up in the mountains where you rely on rainwater and, and grow your own food in a, in a garden or whatever and cut your own firewood for heat in the winter and things like that. You know, there's, there's a handful of people out there that might be able to survive on their own. But the vast majority of society has become so interdependent. When you realize that, starting wars like the one in Ukraine, you're really just shooting yourself in the foot in the long term. You may not realize it right up front, but in the long term, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. So, hey, wake up, folks, and realize just how interdependent we are as a society. And, and, we got to learn how to get along. I agree. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Um, I've been looking forward to this interview for the last few weeks since we first talked, and it's been, honestly, God, one of the absolute best pleasures to speak with you. It's been fun. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 134. I want to thank Dr. Tolan for taking the time to come on the show. Like I said, this was an incredibly in-depth interview, and my knowledge of astronomy grew exponentially. What an incredible man, and I wish him nothing but the best for the future. Okay, tune in again as we, next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. 
Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. But folks, we do prefer good ones. You know that. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. There are some truly fun ones, so please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merge. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And I want to thank them for being such great partners with The Derek Duvall Show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening... I hope you remember to turn your clocks forward an hour. Who knows? Maybe this is the last time we get to do this nonsense, but isn't that the dream, folks? No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.